this Pentecostal experience and expectation has spilled over into Roman Catholic churches and mainline Protestant churches and the charismatic movement. In John Wimber's Signs and Wonders movement of the 80s and 90s, and today's vineyard churches, or in the new apostolic reformation of Bethel Church in California, the powerlessness of the church is remedied not just by speaking in tongues, but by supernatural power encounters where the Spirit's miraculous power is on display in and through Christians during evangelistic conversations with unbelievers. To prove to unbelievers, this is real. Watch this. Now, is that the experience of the Holy Spirit that will reclaim influence for today's church and power for today's Christians? Because if statistics are to be believed, 70% of global evangelicalism thinks so. Because 70% of global evangelicalism is Pentecostal. This problem is real. It's growing. Should we all be Pentecostals today? Spirit is still powerful, but powerful for what? Are we unfaithful to Scripture and to the book of Acts if we're not Pentecostal? I want to ask and try to answer six questions that will guide our time tonight in God's Word and help us answer those other more general questions. Question number one. Should Christians seek baptism in the Spirit subsequent to after conversion? Apart from conversion, after we're already converted, should Christians seek baptism in the Spirit after conversion? Now, on a Pentecostal reading of Acts, Acts teaches that all Christians should seek a second blessing like this, subsequent to conversion. That blessing is baptism in or with the Spirit. Every Christian was already baptized by the Spirit into union with Christ, but not every Christian is baptized by Jesus with or in the Spirit as power for ministry. So there are three stages to full Pentecostal experience, repentance, water baptism, and subsequent baptism in or with the Holy Spirit. The experience of that second blessing baptism in the Spirit should look just like it looked on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, tongues included, hence Pentecostal. The subsequent or sequential nature of this blessing, it's happening after conversion, is rooted in Christian experience recorded in Acts. The disciples in Acts 2 were already Christians as they waited to be baptized in the Spirit. The converts at Pentecost were told to repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. Seems like three stages. The Samaritan converts in Acts 8.14 were already Christians when Peter and John prayed that they would receive the Spirit. Paul in Acts 9 was already converted when Ananias prayed for him to be filled or baptized with the Spirit. Cornelius in Acts 10 to 11 is the Pentecostal ideal. He gets the Spirit with tongues immediately, but many Pentecostals say that most Christians just don't have enough faith 
for that to have it happen to them all at the same time. And finally, the Ephesian disciples in Acts 19 were only baptized into John's baptism, not the Spirit, and when Paul lays hands on them, they finally do receive the Spirit and speak in tongues after they were already called disciples. Someone. Donald Gee summarizes the Pentecostal understanding of the book of Acts. The New Testament appears to indicate, he says, as an unmistakable historical fact that after the first entry of the Spirit in regeneration, new life, there can be and should be also a special personal reception by believers of the Holy Spirit in his original and unique person. This experience is called the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and its purpose is not to impart life, but to impart power. And its characteristic accompaniments are not fruits, but gifts. Man, if you don't know what you're talking about, that sounds awesome! Clear, consistent evidence of this baptism in the Spirit says the Pentecostal is speaking in tongues. Pentecost, Cornelius, the disciples of Ephesus, they all do it. That experience is not merely descriptive of what happened then, it is prescriptive for us today and contributes to assurance of salvation in Pentecostal experience. That's how you know you're saved. And know you have the Spirit in you after you're saved. That's how you know. I got it. I got the full thing. I'm the real deal now. Because I spoke in tongues. All that stuff about assurance that you heard Brandon talk about, that's not enough. You gotta speak in tongues. And if you don't, too bad. You're a second class citizen in the church of God. <coughs> so you better start seeking it. You better get holy. You better do it quick. Because this experience is only given to those who fulfill the requisite conditions. You must already be a Christian. You must reach a threshold of obedience to Christ in purity of heart and life. The Spirit's not going to indwell a sinful heart. And you must have faith, not only in Christ for salvation, but in the Spirit for power. You've got to believe that He will come into your life like this. That you will be baptized in the Spirit like this. You've got to have enough faith. To not meet those conditions is to miss the second lesson. Now, to be fair, the Pentecostal protest against modern naturalism, rationalism, and materialism is commendable. At least they believe that there is a Holy Spirit. But there is a better way to read the book of Acts. In Acts 2, the risen Christ does not pour out his spirit selectively on some or conditionally based on meeting criteria. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Divided tongues as of fire, verse 3, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. No conditions, no exceptions. Nor does it say that any of them were actively doing anything to seek this blessing or the tongue speaking that it produced. It just happened to them. And the tongues are intelligible world languages understandable to native speakers who were present to hear them speaking about the mighty acts of God. They were not private or spiritual languages unique to the person experiencing them and untranslatable by anyone else. And then, when Pentecost happens, what happens after that? A Christian sermon preached by Peter, and the converts from Peter's Pentecost sermon repent by being baptized in water to identify with Jesus' death and resurrection, and they get the Spirit immediately, which is in line with the promise of the New Covenant from Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. This is a baptism for the forgiveness of sins and the reception of the Spirit all at the same time of repentance and water baptism. It's one stage, not three. The Frederick Bruner says this. If you, if you can get a hold of Frederick Bruner's book, A Theology of the Holy Spirit, it, it'll, it'll pay you back. Frederick Bruner says this. Rather than telling his inquirers to await the Holy Spirit in a second Pentecost event with wind, fire, and tongues, Peter offers Christian baptism. Rather than telling the candidates to wait for the Holy Spirit, as the Lord had instructed Peter, Peter offers baptism. Peter invites no one to the upper room. He teaches no one how to speak in tongues. He does not contrast baptism and the gift of the Spirit. He joins them. Incorporation into Christ grants the Spirit. In the name of Christ, the forgiveness of sins always includes positively the gift of the Spirit. The exterior forms of Pentecost, wind, fire, visions, tongues, leave. The essential content, the Spirit, remains. The initial Pentecost event did not institute replicas of itself. It instituted Christian preaching and baptism. It is not little Pentecosts that are either here recorded or are in Acts intended to follow the one Pentecost. Baptism is the sure visible evidence taught in Acts of the reception of the forgiveness of sins with the coordinate gift of the Holy Spirit. There is only one baptism, Ephesians 4, 5. But what about Acts 8, 14 to 17? Let's turn there, where the Samaritans clearly have to wait to receive the Spirit until the apostles come and lay hands on them for that stated purpose. Acts 8, 14 to 17. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, got some converts to Jesus down in Samaria now, they sent to them Peter and John, came down and prayed for them that they might have received the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. So they received the word of God, they were converted, but the Holy Spirit had not fallen on any of them. There it is. Pentecostals are right, right? 
But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. See, baptism in the Holy Spirit, subsequent to conversion, receiving the Word of God. How else are we supposed to read it? Well, we read that as special geographic expansion of the gospel into a new territory, Samaria, into a mixed ethnic group, Samaritans. People who were the fruit of Jew-Gentile marital unions during the exile, despised by full-blooded Jews. So if the gospel were to heal ethnic divides, then these Samaritans had to receive the Spirit on the same terms as full-blooded Jews and with the apostles' presence and approval. That's the only reason the gift of the Spirit is delayed to the Samaritans. Ethnic unity and parity in the regional and global church under the doctrine and authority of the apostles. They're not seeking it earnestly, these Samaritans. They're not attempting to meet a standard of purity in order to get the Spirit. In fact, the one Samaritan who does seek the power of the Spirit in Acts 8 is Simon Magus. And he's rebuked for it. It's the same with Cornelius in Acts 10. 45 and 46, if you want to turn there, when Peter is preaching to Cornelius and his Gentile family and friends, the gift of the Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Here, for the very first time in history, it's not just half-blooded Jews in Samaria, but full-blooded Gentiles from Joppa who are incorporated into Christ's people. And they receive the Spirit and the outward evidence of tongues at Peter's preaching as the external proof that there is neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ's church. God approves of Gentiles coming into the people of God. He gives them the Spirit as its evidence, just as he gave the Samaritans, just as he gave the first Jewish Christians at Pentecost. Everybody's on a level playing field, no matter where they're from, who they are. It's confirmation of the initial ethnic and geographic expansion of the gospel and the church. It is not conditioned on the seeking of the gift or achieving a level of sanctification. It is not selectively given to some, but not to others. And it happens at conversion, not at. Acts 19, 1 through 7, if you want to turn there, the Ephesian disciples had not even heard of the Holy Spirit, much less received him. They were only baptized with John's baptism. In other words, it appears they were disciples of John. Paul preaches Jesus to them in Acts 19, 4. That's why he preaches Jesus to them. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who, had, who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Oh, there's someone coming after John the Baptist? His name is Jesus? Ah, okay. 
I'm hearing this. I'm hearing there was someone coming after John the Baptist whose name is Jesus. I'm hearing that they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's when they became Christians. So these are disciples in a transitional state between John the Baptist and Jesus. And they do speak in tongues at conversion, not after. But immediately on their reception of the Spirit at conversion. It's not subsequent to their conversion. It's simultaneous with their conversion. In all, in all these cases, it's the apostles, Peter, John, Paul, overseeing baptism in the Spirit as it moves out from the Jews to the Samaritans to the Gentiles. The whole church, trans-ethnic, is growing into one body under the one doctrine and one authority of Christ's personally appointed apostles. The point, then, is not the diversity of a two-tiered church membership, those with or without baptism in the Spirit. That's not the point. The point is the opposite of diversity. It's the unity of the church and of the experience of conversion and spirit filling under apostolic doctrine and authority, regardless of ethnicity or geography. In other words, now, I really want to take credit for this sentence, and I can't. I wish I had put it like this. This is a brilliant sentence. This is Sinclair Ferguson. Pentecost is programmatic for acts, not paradigmatic for Christians. That summarizes. The event of Pentecost is viewed as programmatic rather than paradigmatic. In other words, the program or schedule of Acts is the spread of the gospel by the power of the Spirit from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly where you see baptism of the Spirit going in the passages we just read. Jesus told the apostles to wait until they were clothed with power, and then their witness would be effective. They wait, they are clothed with power in Jerusalem as the gospel breaks new ground in the concentric circles outside Jerusalem. The Spirit gives the gift of tongues to confirm his presence and power in new gospel frontiers. And what more appropriate evidence outwardly to give that is speaking in foreign languages about the works of God at a gospel frontier. That's why the only other places it happens is in Acts 8 with the Samaritan believers, Acts 10 with the Gentile Cornelius in Caesarea, and in Acts 19 with the as Ferguson says, the events at Samaria and Caesarea mark the second and third stages of the three decisive points of advance in the spread of the kingdom of Christ outlined in Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, other parts of the In other words, the people who get personal Pentecosts are the first Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles receive the gospel. 
Second question. Should Christians try or expect to speak in tongues today? Well, we've already noted that Peter does not teach people how to speak in tongues, or even that they should speak in tongues. He doesn't encourage them to seek their own personal Pentecost experience. We've also noted that tongues are given when the gospel is breaking new ethnic and geographic ground. We now want to show that untranslated tongues are actually a sign of judgment, not a sign of blessing. 1 Corinthians 14. Turn to 1 Corinthians 14. 21 and 20. Tongues do function in Acts as the outward evidence of the Spirit's power to glorify Jesus. They do. We're not denying that. The saints of Pentecost are filled with the Spirit to speak of God's mighty works in Christ and recognizable foreign languages that foreign peoples can understand. When they begin speaking in these languages, it drew a crowd in Acts 1 6. They were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from under every nation of heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And he asked in verse 8, How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And it becomes clear by verse 8 that this sign of tongues is a sign of salvation for them. They are hearing in their own language what God has done in Christ, and that, that provides for them forgiveness of sins. That's true. For them, tongues functions evangelistically, missionally for their salvation. Acts 1 but not for Jews there who did not know those languages. Not for them. Hearing an untranslated foreign language is actually debilitating for your response to the gospel. And in Isaiah 28, it is intentionally so. God warned his people in Isaiah 28, 11, that because they had rejected his word in their own language, he would speak to them in a language they would not understand. And he would not give them an interpreter. In other words, he would send them into exile in a foreign country that spoke a language that was foreign to them. Isaiah 28 foretells God's judgment of exile on Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel. He tells them, Isaiah 28, 7, that priest and prophet are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. God intoxicates them with his judgment. He makes them drunk on his wrath for their unfaithfulness in ministry. But if the priests and prophets can't teach straight or can't hear God's word rightly, then in Isaiah 28, 9, to whom will he teach knowledge? Who will the priest teach knowledge if he can't understand anything, if he's drunk? And to whom will he explain the message? And Isaiah 28, 11 is the answer. For by people of strange lips, and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. If my priests are drunk on my judgment because they disobeyed me so long and so badly, and they're the ones who are supposed to preserve knowledge and speak it, then here's what I will do. I will speak my knowledge to them through the lips of foreign peoples and foreign languages, and they won't be able to understand it. And that will be my judgment on them. Since unbelieving Israel did not listen when God spoke the gospel to them in Hebrew, God would speak to them in Assyrian. In a foreign country, in a foreign language. Hearing God talk to you in a foreign language that you don't understand is not a salvation. It is not a blessing. 
And that is why Paul quotes Isaiah 28.11 in 1 Corinthians 14 in talking about tongues. He says, 1 Corinthians 14.21-23, Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. How? How should I be mature in my thinking, Paul? For it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. You don't speak tongues to impress your believing friends or to convince them that you have the Spirit in the second blessing. It's not the reason for it. When God speaks to you in a foreign tongue you don't understand, it's because of unbelief. And it is a sign of judgment on unbelief among God's external people. That's why Paul doesn't want untranslated tongues spoken in church services. Sinclair Ferguson takes it that way too. I could read you the footnote, but you need to get home. But it is not a sign of spiritual maturity or intimacy with God to mimic the tongues of Pentecost in church services without translation. That's misguided. If, if, if untranslated tongues function today as they did in Scripture, then it's a sign of judgment. Not less. And all this fits with where Acts is going to end up in the next 26 chapters. Jerusalem rejects the preaching of Peter, James, and Stephen. They try to kill Paul when he's converted in Acts 9. By Acts 28-26, Paul is quoting Isaiah 6 to the unbelieving Jews in Rome. Go to this people, Israel, and say, say what? You will indeed hear, but you will never understand. Hearing and speaking Untranslated tongues is not a blessing in Scripture. And therefore, it should not be treated that way in the churches. Third question, should miraculous healings and deliverances be normal today? You know, we read of the apostles healing diseases, casting out demons and acts, but this ability to heal is unique to the apostles and their closest associates. Besides, think about the differences between this healing in Acts 3, the healing of the man born lame, and modern faith healers' claims to heal people. Peter's healing of the paralytic in Acts 3 was public, visible, verbal. He just did it by speaking. It was organic. Like a setting of a bone. It was immediate. It was total. It was permanent. Everyone saw it. It wasn't just back pain or a migraine. It was paralysis of the feet and ankles. In a man known by all the locals for 40 years, there was no magical incantation, no medicinal remedy, and as soon as Peter said the word, the paralytic was completely, immediately healed with visible proof in his leaping and walking into the temple to join the people of God in corporate worship. Today's purported healings are invisible, mystical, magical, superstitious incantations, psychological, often only gradual or merely partial. 
Besides, if biblical miraculous healing is going on today, why in the world is it not happening in hospitals? Or at the scenes of school shootings? Or in war-torn countries? Or in megacities ravaged by earthquakes? There are plenty of opportunities for immediate, total, visible, organic healings today. Why is it always the stuff that can't be seen? Back pain and migraines. Why not the complete, immediate, and permanent healing of broken bones? What if we had known today's people who are purportedly healed of their paralysis before they were on TV? Or what if we followed them after the camera stopped rolling? In very point of fact, John Wimber died without being miraculously healed of a brain aneurysm in 1997, and he was the leader of the charismatic vineyard movement. No sign and wonder for you. But he's not the most important person who wasn't healed. Second Corinthians 12. God does not heal Paul, but was born in the flesh, even after Paul asked three times. Why didn't Paul just zap himself? Verse 75, 23. Paul does not offer to heal Timothy by a miracle. But instead tells them, take a little medicinal wine for your stomach ailments. What you need is a good Cabernet Sauvignon. Second <laughs> <laughs> Timothy 4.20, Paul left Trophimus sick in Miletus instead of healing him. If physical healing were the birthright of every Christian, why in the world would an apostle like Paul not just pull the thorn out of his own flesh or heal all of his pastoral delegates? It sure would have made his life a lot easier. Even Jesus himself did not want to be known mainly as a physical healer. He made that very clear as early as Mark 1. The morning after he had been casting out demons and healing people, he was praying. Peter comes, tells everyone he's looking for him. Did he go back to healing? No, he did not. He said, let us go on to the next towns that I may, what? That I may preach there also, for that is why I came out, not to heal, but to preach. The healing only confirmed the preaching. The healing was secondary. The preaching was primary. Other faith healers today advocate naming demons or rebuking them in the name of Jesus, saying specific phrases to them, exercising power over them. But listen, you got to look at it. This is the kind of thing you read. You read the Bible for the first time, and you get to Acts 19, and you're like, what? That's in the Bible? That's in the Bible. Acts 19, turn there. Acts 19, 13 to 17. Then some Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. Yeah. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Stephen were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. <laughs> and Paul I recognize, but who are you? I don't remember hearing your name in hell. You have Zero standing to talk to me like that. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. <laughs> 
Didn't see that coming, did you? Oh, is that how God, Jesus is going to extol his name like that? Yeah, you don't make that up. In the very next verses in that passage associate that kind of spiritual warfare with magic arts and superstitions that new Christian converts repent of. Neil Anderson and Frank Peretti are not Paul's idea of spiritual warfare. Paul's approach to spiritual warfare is 2 Corinthians 10.5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's mental, it's theological, it's doctrinal, it's worldview, it is not mystical. In fact, not even the archangel Michael presumed to rebuke Satan in Jude 9, but would only say the Lord rebuked him. In fact, it is false teachers in Scripture who are the ones who go further than angels in presuming to have authority over Satan and demons. To assume we have that authority from Jesus, for example, sending of the twelve in Matthew 10, is to assume an authority Jesus only gave to them, not to us. Jesus tells 72, to rejoice that their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Not that the demons were subject to them. Were the demons subject to them? Yes, apparently they were, because Jesus said they were. But it was misguided excitement in them when they did it, and it is misguided expectation that we, or other church leaders today, will do. The success of the 72 said something about Jesus, not about the 72. Much less about us. We can pray to Jesus about demons. We don't talk to demons in the name of Jesus. That's following the steps of the sons of seed. Besides, miracles are extraordinary, not ordinary. By definition. be Warfield noted that if miracles are to be common everyday occurrences, normal and not extraordinary, they cease to attract attention and lose their very reason for existence. If miracles are the law of the Christian life, they cease to serve their chief end. End quote. Miracles are suspensions of natural law. By definition, they are exceptions to the rule. If miracles become so common that they form a new rule, they lose their distinctiveness as exceptions. And you're not redefining what they are. And they lose their power to convince. None of this, though, means that God is no longer answering prayer. God does answer prayer every day. You should pray. God will answer. He is the supernatural sovereign God, but when he answers prayer, he does it by his providence over nature, not by overriding the laws of nature. And extraordinary experience is not necessarily miraculous. There are all sorts of experiences that are extraordinary, that yet are not miraculous in the biblical sense. Lots of inexplicable, rare, unlikely things happen that are yet still governed by the laws of nature. Just because we cannot explain them doesn't mean they're miracles. And yet, just because something is extraordinary and still not miraculous, also does not mean it is not an answer to prayer. It may very well be an answer to prayer. It may just be a kind of answer that while it is from God, it is not God breaking or suspending the laws of nature, but rather God bending his providence to serve his children. In answer to their requests. Because he's good. And he's powerful. Fourth question. Are apostolic gifts, powers, and offices for today? 
Well, Bethel Church in Redding, California thinks so. And they've got 780,000 Instagram followers to influence. The pastor Bill Johnson calls himself an apostle. His associate, Chris Valaton, that's a really cool name, man. Chris Valaton, come on. He had to pick that. Chris Valaton calls himself a prophet. You might know Bethel as a hotbed of the new apostolic reformation. They also lead Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. That's a real thing. Where they teach people how to develop miraculous powers. They've got an enrollment of 2,600 students. That rivals and surpasses many theological seminaries. They claim direct personal encounters with Jesus hearing and give them messages like, My church is moving from denominationalism to apostleships. And they spread their method by producing what passes for worship music because, in Bill Johnson's own words from a 2019 Facebook post, music bypasses all the intellectual barriers. And get this sense. I mean, just listen to how he's putting words together. This is remarkable. Music bypasses all of the intellectual barriers. And when the anointing of God is on a song, people will begin to believe things they would not believe through teaching. Oh, is that what the anointing of God does? Makes you believe through a song something that you would not believe if it were preached to you through the Bible? Now, is that what real Christianity looks like today? Is that, is that where real power is going to be found today for the churches? Or is it really just the stuff of mentalists and educated guessers? When we look at Scripture, we see miracles performed a limited number of times by only a few people for a definite, limited purpose. And that purpose is to confirm new revelation. Even in Scripture, miracles are not performed at random places and times by random people. Sometimes you've got to read a really long time to read about a miracle of Scripture, don't you? Oh, yeah, when's the next miracle happen? Come on! <laughs> miracles happen to confirm the truth of new revelation from God. Plagues of Egypt, the Exodus, Sinai, the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Jesus' ministry is full of miracles precisely to confirm that he is, in his own person, the revelatory word of God himself. Peter even calls Jesus in Acts 2.22 a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. They were designed to attest to the man, the God-man. Miracles happened through the apostles for that same reason. To confirm the authority of their commission from Christ himself and the authenticity of their message about Jesus. Without new revelation from God, then, miracles lose their biblical reason for being, which is to testify to the truth of new revelation from God. Once God's revelation to all mankind for all time was complete in history and scripture, the purpose of miracles ended. Besides, the New Testament apostles and prophets were given as the foundation of the church in Ephesians 2.20. Once for all, you only lay a foundation once. In fact, B.B. Warfield of Old Princeton goes so far as to say that had any miracles perchance occurred beyond the apostolic age, they would be without significance, mere occurrences, no universal meaning, because Christ is all in all, and all revelation and redemption alike are summed up in him, it would be inconceivable that either revelation 
or its accompanying signs should continue after the completion of that great revelation with its accrediting works. Jesus is it. What more do you want? What more is there to attest to? In very point of fact, when God rebukes Old Testament Israel for forgetting, what is it that they're forgetting? Not the miracles in their own day, the miracles in the forefathers' day. The Exodus, the plagues. You forgot those. Those were the ones I did. And I did them not for your forefathers only, but for you as their children, grandchildren, great grandchildren, great 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 grandchildren. You should be looking back to those miracles. Not expecting new ones. Signs and wonders are unique to the apostles and their delegates. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle. Words got to mean something, man. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you by me, without those patients, with signs and wonders and mighty works. You knew a true apostle by the signs that he worked, which confirmed the message he preached and the authority he had from the risen Christ himself. Yet those signs and wonders can be counterfeited. Jesus himself said, false Christs and false prophets will rise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Hey man, you can't trust it just because you can see it. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, 13, some men were false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of life. So, it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Pharaoh's magicians made their staffs become snakes, too. Fifth question. What does the Spirit empower in Acts and in the church today? Man, Pastor, you're being awful negative. Every one of these questions, you've answered no. <laughs> I'm about to get in my car. What does he do? Well, he empowers verbal witness to Jesus. Acts 1 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. That's what he does. What the Spirit empowers is witness to Jesus, and in the outworking of Acts, that witness is inescapably verbal. When the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, Jesus is preached from the Old Testament. Frederick Bruder put it this way, the meaning of Pentecost is to be found not in the interior spiritual life of the disciples, nor even in the gift of the Holy Spirit, but in the preaching of Jesus Christ. I mean, look, look at how much space is given in Acts 2 to the event of Pentecost, and look at how much space is given to Peter's sermon about the meaning of Pentecost being Jesus has ascended to pour out this that you see in here. Even quantitatively. But Bruner's not done. In the center of Luke's attention at Pentecost is not spiritual ecstasy, but a Christian sermon. The minute, this is 
really, I would, there's another sentence I wish I'd come up with. The ministry of the Spirit, you should write this down. The ministry of the Spirit is Christocentricity. Christ-centeredness. That's what the Spirit does. Just like Brother Tyler preached to you. And the power of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the power of Christocentricity. You see it modeled in Acts 4.8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he preached. Acts 6.10, with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. The Spirit also empowers service to the church. Acts 6.3, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, evangelism to the world, Acts 4.31, and the character of Christ, Galatians 5, through the spirit, as you've already heard from. Sixth and final, are miracles then biblically necessary for effective evangelism today? Do we need miracles? Do we need them? John Wimber, leader of the Vineyard Movement, thought so. He said, and I quote, We are thrust into the middle of a battle with Satan, the prize being the souls of men and women who are in bondage to sin, physical and emotional problems, social disruption, demonic affliction. Our mission is to rescue those who have been taken captive as a result of Adam's fall. And what's necessary for releasing people from bondage is a power encounter, which, he says, is a visible, practical demonstration that Jesus Christ is more powerful than the false gods or spirits worshipped or feared by a people or group. In power evangelism, John Wimber says, resistance to the gospel is overcome by a demonstration of God's power in supernatural events. Receptivity to Christ's claims is usually very high. Power encounters authenticate conversion experiences, Wimber said, to confirm and assure the Christian's faith. God's promise from Ezekiel 36 and Numbers 11 is not enough for your assurance. You need a miracle. Pentecostals, this is the secret to church growth. But it was not so for Jesus or for Paul. In fact, for Jesus, people are no more likely to trust in him after seeing miracles than they are after hearing scripture read from the Old Testament. Jesus says, look, I don't think you're going to be any more likely to believe in me after I myself work a miracle in front of your very eyes than you are to be converted by the reading of Moses. Remember Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man ends up in hell with a poor Lazarus who gathered crumbs at the rich man's table is now in heaven. The rich man says to Abraham in heaven, Luke 1631, I beg you to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, 
They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, oh, you got a good point. I didn't think about that. <laughs> he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And in very point of fact, someone did rise from the dead, Jesus Christ the righteous, and they still do not believe. John 12, 37, even though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And that was him doing it, not you. And that is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24, for Jews demand signs. And Paul could have given them to him. Greeks seek wisdom, but, but, I know what they're seeking. I know what they're demanding. I know. I gave them the survey. They said, we want signs and wonders. Jews want signs. Greeks want wisdom. That's how the survey came back. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. He is the power, not the sign, the Savior. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What is necessary for the growth of the church is not signs and wonders, but the sufficiency of Scripture and the preaching of the gospel. Amen. Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That is the power we need. The power of the pulpit. The power of spirit-filled, Christ-exalting proclamation. Brother, demand that from your pastor in your church. Encourage him to devote himself to that. Develop a greater interest and appetite for hearing that. Encourage your fellow church members to grow in wanting and attending to that. That is the power that God's Spirit uses to do God's work. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to accomplish the purpose of God. At the end of the day, a Christian man does not interpret the Bible by his own experience or any experience of any others, no matter how many others have that experience. We interpret all experience in light of the Bible. So brother, you better settle it now. What are you going to trust more? God's Word or some experience? Lord Christ, we confess that we are still ourselves all too vulnerable to trusting our own feelings, experiences, intuitions, superstitions. Look at things happen. We love, we love to look, see, feel. The word says we can't trust that self. So we pray, would you 
cause us to put all of our confidence in your word, and to put no confidence, even in the sweetest frame, but that we would wholly be on Jesus for his sake.